the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. If you're a seeker, don't miss the inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening, Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work, Chronicles shamanic counselor and indigenously trained dream decoder Sander Cochran's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers throughout the Americas. Sandy's initiations across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt, combined with her knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth, influence her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private readings, sacred international journeys, a meditative CD, and her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate your earthwalk and create a deeper connection to yourself. Find this and more at her website, starwalkervisions.com. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as you already know. I'm going to be joined in just a moment by Don Ledger, but before I get to him, I'd like to point out one thing. Back in the... uh, 1990s, more than 20 years ago, I was at a MUFON conference. I was there as one of the speakers, as was Chris Stiles. And Chris Stiles' uh, program was about the Shag Harbor UFO crash. And I was busy preparing a book called Scientific Ufology. And some of the things that he had proposed or mentioned during his uh, lecture were fascinating to me. And I asked uh, Chris if I could use some of that material, with proper credit, of course, in the book. And Chris kindly granted permission as long as I would mention his partner, Don Ledger, in it. Well, when the book came out, I actually had called him Doug Ledger. So after all these years, Doug, uh, Don, (laughs) whoever you are, (laughs) I would like to apologize for that gaffe and welcome you to the program. I will tell people that you are a private pilot and an aircraft owner with 20 years' experience and over 1,000 hours of flying time a former zone commander for the Halifax District Civil Air Search and Rescue Association. Uh, He is also past president and current editor for the Stanley Sport Aviation Association. He is a member of the Canadian Owners and Pilots Association and the U.S. US Experimental Aircraft Association. He is a coordinator at the legislative television. Ledger spends his free time flying and writing, uh, writing. I believe... His uh, most important book, at least for me, his most important book, and it was written with Chris Stiles, of course, is Dark Object, the world's only government-documented UFO crash, which details the Shag Harbor UFO crash. So, Don, welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much. If if you hadn't mentioned the Doug incident, I would have brought it up myself. (laughs) Well, it was just horrifying for me. I was all right. As you can imagine, and, and I, I, 
I mean, somebody puts in that much work on a project, uh, a UFO investigation, <laughs> at least I got the ledger part right, okay? Yeah, yeah, the ledger part was good. And then I've, I've, I've apologized in other areas of communication repeatedly for this gaffe, <laughs> and I apologize in person for it now. Yeah, yeah no problem. It's, uh, it's not a big deal that you quickly change that. And, of course, you know, since those days uh, in the book came out, you know, it became a uh, a little bit better or more well-known as a, as a writer about UFOs. I had the other book out, Two Maritime UFO Files, and um, which is, you know, arose from the uh, search for documents. I had to do it all over again once I decided to write the book. And uh, I, I re-interviewed Chris, and then I uh, went into the uh, library loaner system in order to get uh, – Back in those days, we're talking the uh, probably ninety six, ninety seven. Um, that was the way we did it then. We'd go through the library loaner system and get the microfilm from the uh, National Archives in Ottawa and uh, go through all of those myself to find the uh, the Her- Shake Harbor documents. And of course, during that time, I, that's when I really got my eyes open because. You know, uh, Kevin, uh, for years I'd read about UFOs, like yourself, you know, I had an interest in it. And um, I uh, wanted to uh, find out more and more about it, but just about all of the books I ever read were usually American-based. Um, and Well, not usually, pretty much, basically, that's what it was, American-based. And then when I uh, went through the documents, uh, there were 7,700 of them in Ottawa that came on those uh uh, RG 76, 24, 21, I think. I can't remember the other one. And uh, about 7,700 documents on there. Now, there was a bunch of garbage in there, but there was a, 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 a thousands of uh, UFO reports, and most of them were either uh, military reports or, you know, Air Force, and uh, or police reports. And then the odd uh, report to uh, the smaller agencies, agencies we had in Canada to match... Uh, you know, APRO and uh, NICAP and so on back in, in the early days. So uh, amongst them, I found about 500 that pertained to just to my area down here in, east, in the eastern part of Canada. And uh, I downloaded all of those. It cost me a few hundred dollars and quarters to get them all. And because uh, in those days, you, you know, photocopy it on the machine you were operating the microfilm on. And that's when I, I got those out. I wrote, and, and from that, I wrote Maritime UFO Files. That was just sort of by accident. But anyway, uh, yeah. That well, was, let, me, uh, let, me inter- let me interrupt you here, uh, Don, because we're going to have to take a quick break. Sure. And, uh, when we come back, we'll discuss Shag Harbor and give people a little bit of an update on it. But we will be back right after these messages and uh, with more with Don Ledger. Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Mnemology Science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Mnemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. 
You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere, Florida. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine such as hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining rooms can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you visit, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic downtown Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, Old Florida cuisine at its best. And believe it or, be, uh, believe it or not, we are back with Don Ledger, and I was wanting to talk about uh, Dark Object, the world's only government-documented UFO crash, which is a book that he wrote about the Shag Harbor case. We'll get into the maritime UFOs here in a little in a little bit of time here, but I think, um, Don, can you give us just a brief background on what the Shag Harbor UFO crash is all about? Sure. It's, it's not easy to, to uh, uh, you know, brief it up, uh, but... Uh, uh, essentially, uh, October 4th, 1967, and uh, cool, uh, clear evening, no moon, and around 20, uh, this is the beginning of this particular incident, uh, about 25 after 11 in the evening, so quickly it went from October the 4th to the 5th. Um, uh, some uh, Two different cars were driving back from an area called Cape Sable Island, which is about, uh, you know, five or six miles as the crow flies, maybe 10 miles by road to the northeast of uh, Shag Harbor. And it's, uh, they call it an island, but it's got a causeway going out to it. And the Coast Guard uh, Harbor is out there too. But anyway, these people are coming back from some kind of a community event there. And one of them was Lori Vic- Wickens. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Lori Wickens. And um, the um, he had a, a buddy of his in the car with him. And as they're driving along, coming along, heading southwest to, to uh, Shag Harbor back home, they uh, saw these lights on the right-hand side of the car seemed to be paralleling them up maybe a thousand fifth or fifteen hundred feet, traveling along with the car. Uh, these were just, just like, these it, were these were just lights, colored lights. Uh, any color yeah, to them? Yeah, they were uh, sort of an amber uh, gold colored light. Uh, uh, four to five of them flashing in sequence from front to back or back to front, you know, on the edge. But they really couldn't make out the object itself. Um, so anyway. They watched this, thing, and they were by this time he's picking up a little bit of speed, and it's on on old Highway Number Three, which is pretty much the same, looks pretty much the same as it did back in 1967, even today. And uh, but it's a curvy old thing, uh, two lane highway, and um, so they they followed this thing along, and it eventually made its way right right into the edge of Shag Harbor, the uh, the village, and uh, they traveled on through. They're 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 uh, doing going a pretty good clip at this point, you know, basically speeding. And uh, uh, right through Shag Harbor and out the other side to uh, Maggie Garrett's Point, which is just on the on the southwestern side of Shag Harbor. You know, it's uh, maybe a half or quarter mile long. And they lost it behind some trees as it curved around in front of the car, losing altitude, coming down at about a 45-degree angle. And they thought then, okay, this is going to crash into the water, which would have been the sound between Shag Harbor and... Uh, uh, Odor Island or Bon Potage Island, whichever one you prefer. And uh, so they came around to Ben, and the Irish moss plant was sitting there. It's got a gravel parking lot. The plant's probably about 40 by 50 feet, uh, you know, and uh, maybe uh, 20 feet high, cinder block type building. And uh, but anyway, uh, they pull into the parking lot on the gravel. They go right, and by then, by this time, they're right at the edge of the water. And they get out of the car and they look out and they see this 
thing that seems to be either floating on the water or just above it. And was this was, bear- when you say mm-hmm. thing? Was this did it have the amber lights on it still? Was it? Uh- it, it rather than the flashing lights at this point, it had uh, a pale yellow light at what they assumed was the top. It looked to be about sixty feet wide, and uh, and uh, with this pale yellow light, and about maybe uh, uh, ten to twelve feet thick through from the bottom to the top at the center. It was so oval they're, shaped. They're, yeah, they're looking at an actual object now, not just lights yeah. in the sky. An actual object yeah. on the water. Yeah, okay. but there's no moon, so it's it's hard to see out in the water. The water is relatively calm. They didn't know, and it seemed to be moving out. Now they thought maybe if it was sitting on the water, the tide was at ebb. And they thought maybe it was moving with the tide, or maybe it was under its own power. But what they thought it was was a, an airplane that had just crashed and was drifting on the water. That's their first impression. Uh, Lori Wickens gets back in the car with his people. They run up further down the road to uh, Lower Woods Harbor, which is only about a quarter mile away. There's a gas station there, and it had one of the old payphone boxes on the outside. So he went in, and he called uh, the RCMP uh, detachment back and. Uh, Barrington Passage was just going back to the northeast again, about probably 15 miles, and uh, got a hold of Victor Rubicki, who was uh, Corporal Victor Rubicki, who was the uh, uh, the duty officer that night at the RCMP detachment. And he was by himself. And uh, Laurie said to him, he said, I think we just saw a plane crash into, just outside of Shag Harbor in the Sound. And Laurie's about 18 years old. Everybody involved here at that time was around 18 years old. And... Um, and uh, Rebecca says to Lori, because he's, he knows him, he says, have you been drinking? And, of course, uh, Lori, uh, Dickey, they call him in, in the area, Dickey said, no, no, I've been drinking. He got kind of ticked off about that. And uh, <clears throat> so, um, anyway, he said, well, just uh, you, uh, my, other li- my other line's ringing. He was by himself in the detachment. He said, my other line's ringing. So what I want you to do is give me the phone number there. And he took the phone number down to the pay, pay booth. He says, you stay right there, and I'll call you back picks up the phone and some somebody from Maggie Guerin's point, which is, you know, the point they just passed to get to the Irish Moss plant, and said that they just thought they saw an airplane crash into the sound. And then the phone rings again. Somebody from Beer Point had called in, saw they saw something going down towards the water, over towards Shake Harbor, might have crashed into the harbor. They're further away. Another so one from a woman. We, so now we've got a number of witnesses talking about yeah. the thing falling into the harbor. It's not just a bunch of teenagers, which no. is the way the Condon Committee wrote it off. But it, no. it's, it's, it's several people in the area saw the object in the sky, saw it falling toward the water. Exactly. And uh, and then uh, another phone call came from uh, Cape Sable Island, which I mentioned to you earlier. And it was a woman and her, her daughter who were returning back from the same community function, and they th- they saw it coming down, too, way over towards Shake Harbor, and they thought it might have crashed in Shake Harbor, an airplane. So everybody's thinking an airplane crashed in Shake Harbor, and that's what Rubicki's thinking now when he calls back to Lori. He says, okay, I'm getting all kinds of phone recall- phone calls. Um, I want you to go back uh, to the Irish Moss plant and keep an eye on the thing, okay? And uh, so that's what Lori does. In the meantime, he gets a hold. I'm trying to exhilarate this thing for you, Kevin. He gets a hold of two mounties. He's got staked out on a on a, uh, on a clearing somewhere down past Lower Woods Harbor, uh, looking for deer jackers. That's what they call them here in Nova Scotia. People who poach deer, if you want to call it that. It's was hunting season, but doing it at night is illegal. Anyway, so these two guys go racing back to Barrington. They uh, they meet with the Rubicki there. The, the two officers were Ron Pond and Ron O'Brien. The two Rons, we call them. And uh, all three of them head back to uh, towards uh, Shake Harbor to the Irish Moss plant. In the meantime, uh, Dave Kendrick and uh, and uh, boy, I'm missing one of my uh, main people here. Uh, when they they were in their car, they were heading back at the same time behind uh, Lori Wickens' car, and they saw the same thing in the sky. So we've got multiple witnesses. We've got multiple witnesses to this thing. There's a lot of people yeah. saw it. Saw it down. They, people saw it on the ocean or on the sure. in the harbor. Yeah. Um, so let's let's advance it a, a little bit. Uh, we we got military get involved at some point. Uh, wasn't there a photograph taken? Something like that that also seems to document this. Not to mention all the documents that you will find later. Yeah. But but uh, so isn't the military eventually brought into this? Yeah, they were. Uh, just just before that, we've got about uh, 24 people now at the Irish Moss plant that show up. There are people driving by, including uh, uh, the next premier of Nova Scotia, about three years later. And uh, he uh, 
they saw this thing all floating on the water and getting further out. They think if it's an airplane, they've got to get boats out there. They get a couple boats out there. They run into the area. They find the famous uh, foam that's about three and a half inches, four inches thick that uh, looks like shaving cream with a glittery yellow surface. All now, the this fishermen is- all... This is this foam is this foam is associated with the object with the thing that fell. Yeah, they're thinking. Of course, the people there that uh, uh, that are out on the boats now are thinking maybe this is a product of jet fuel or, or uh, you know, air, uh, regular aircraft fuel. And as you and I know, it doesn't react that way with salt water. And um, but anyway, they um, uh, they 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 sail into this foam, which is about a half mile long, about eighty feet wide. They try to take samples that won't come out of the water. There's more detail on that, and so on and so forth. Now. Um, in the meantime, uh, Ron O'Brien had been tasked by Victor Werbicki to uh, contact the RCC, which is Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, uh, which is a quasi-military civilian thing, and uh, see if there was any aircraft missing. They do the usual searches, if, you know, like if you didn't show up your airport in time and you had a flight plan and so on. And uh, they had uh, done a, a thorough search and uh, were not able to find anybody missing either here or even down in the eastern seaboard of the United States. And no military, no commercial aircraft, and no private aircraft. So they got back to uh, the Coast Guard station over in uh, Cape Sable Island, who was on its way over now, and they finally arrived there about 12.30 in the evening over at the crash site, supposed crash site. And uh, they told uh, Ron O'Brien, who was the on-scene commander at this time, that they didn't. there was no aircraft missing that, as far as they knew. So everybody at that point is wondering, well, what the hell are we looking for here? You know, what's going on? We all saw it. And... Uh, so that's how the, uh, the, the the RCMP got involved. The RCMP uh, request to RCC in Halifax went through to Ottawa to the air desk, which was actually uh, was actually manned by the RCAF in the, in the day. And um, that's how the military uh, side of it got involved. And so they they started uh, thinking, well, we better get some divers down there and see what happened. There's a, maybe it was some aircraft that we didn't have listed. Maybe it was military and they didn't want to talk about it or something. Well, let me so, let me break let me break in here because there was a photograph taken, wasn't there? Isn't there a photograph? Oh, there's there's oh I know what you're talking about. Uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is a, is a big huge network here in Canada, sort of like your ABC, NBC, CBS, anything like that. Um, they had been down there and they during the during the day, the next day, and filmed the uh, fishing boats operating out on the water. Uh, everybody's taking this seriously, Kevin, because. Uh, the, the Halifax uh, uh, Mail Star Chronicle Herald Mail Star was uh, uh, had covered this, and it was the biggest newspaper in Eastern Canada, and very conservative newspaper. And if you look up anywhere and I look up for the newspaper headline, which was in red, usually you'll see black and white online on uh, on the internet or on Google or whatever, says in two inch letters right across the top of the of the uh, uh, the, the uh, front page, maybe some something concrete to UFO crash in Shag Harbor. Uh, RCMP dash RCMP and uh, pardon me RCAF and uh, which kind of shocked everybody it was the, the article was written by Ray McLeod he was a reporter for the Herald Herald Mail and uh, so anyway um, by don't forget now we're already into the fifth by the sixth uh, they had uh, shuttled uh, uh, divers from the fleet diving unit from the Navy in, in Halifax at Statacona, and they, they went down there, and they got into the water around 1 o'clock in the afternoon on, on Friday. They searched around till around 6.30, and then they finally said, well, we can't find nothing. They reported back to Ron Pond, the unseen commander, and said, we can't find anything down there. There's nothing there as far as we know. And because um, everybody's calling this a crash, and uh, this thing sunk. But anyway, maybe it did, but apparently it was under its own volition. And um, so... Um, Having uh, discovered that, Ron O'Brien con- contacted RCC in Halifax. RCC in Halifax is going through Maritime Command, which is the Navy, and then back to the RCC uh, uh, headquarters, the, uh, R- um, the Royal Canadian Navy in Ottawa, and they're sent- telling them to go back out there, stay there until further notice, and keep looking. Okay, let me, let, me, let me break in here. So we've got, now we've got lots of witnesses who saw the thing in the air, lots yep. of witnesses who saw it on the water, and yep. now we have the, uh, the Mounties involved, we've yep. got the uh, Royal Canadian Navy involved, uh, you talked yep. about the Royal uh, Canadian Air Force being involved in some yep. fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're all generating documents, so this thing is well documented. 
Oh yes, so, yeah. So when we when we come back, we'll talk we'll talk a little bit about this documentation. But okay. uh, let let me remind you, this, we're talking a little bit here about dark dark object, the world's only government documented UFO crash, and you can learn more about Don Ledger at uh, www.donledger.com/uap.html. So we will be back talking more about this in just a few moments. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at... Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone broadcast network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world.
We have returned with Don Ledger, who is talking about uh, the Shag Harbor UFO crash, which is detailed in the book Dark Object, the world's only government-documented UFO crash. And we say government-documented from what Don has told us and from his, what his research, the research has shown is that the government, the Canadian government, uh, was involved from the very beginning with this, from the uh, law enforcement aspect of it to the military aspect of it. And I know that there was a great deal of documentation generated about this uh, case. And I, I think we'll just cut right to the chase here, because I know you want to talk about the maritime UFO crate, uh, cases as well. But when we're talking about the documentation, did they draw any conclusions about what had happened? Yeah, eventually they well they didn't uh, draw a, a solid conclusion as to what it was. They 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 drew a solid conclusion as to what it wasn't, which was a crashed aircraft and and, and uh, nothing anything else that they could determine. Um, the um, it was uh, a, a bit of a conundrum for them. Let's face it, and uh, they had a lot of a lot of equipment was involved, a lot of manpower was involved here, so it wasn't uh, you know a fly by night thing. This went on basically for four or five days, right? at least until Sunday night, and until uh, the divers finally uh, packed in and they went back to Staticone and Halifax. And, uh, and, the, and the Mounties, uh, they did write a report on it. And, of course, there are reports in, the, in, in those documents you'll see from, uh, you know, you're going to actually see the, the, the uh, uh, telex is going back and forth between Maritime Command and, and Halifax and uh, Can Marcom, they call it, and, uh, and, uh, and the... Uh, in Ottawa, and the uh, about divers, about the situation. One of the uh, documents by um, uh, Squadron Leader William Bain uh, at the air desk in Ottawa uh, had uh, remarked on what had happened down there, and he called it the dark object. That's where we got the title from for the book, and uh, because they had they had no other name for it. But he also used uh, UFO in the margins with three under three lines on underlining that himself, and his name was on the top, and. Uh, so uh, they were taking this considerably seriously, as you know. They were a little bit, you know, a little less uh, objectionable about these things, uh, Kevin, back in the day, you know, as, as opposed to they are what what happens nowadays. And uh, so it was being taken very seriously, considering the documentary on this thing, at least from the fact that something was going on in Chag Harbor, but as to what it was, nobody knows. Now, if you got a moment there, there were a couple of small incidents here that came to light after the book. And uh, one at, towards the end of it, and I was uh, uh, before Lori Wickens and the, his crew showed up to pull in. A guy who was a, a switch tender, which for the railroad, was returning, uh, going down to lower towards Lower Woods Harbor, and uh, he pulled over on the side of the road, right just past the Irish Moss Plant, maybe a couple of hundred feet, and to, to look up at the sky because he saw two moons up there. And that confused him. So he got out of the car to look at him. One of the moons separated and went down towards and landed on the water right beside the Irish Moss plant. He in his car and took off. Now, this was reported to us by his daughter, who uh, said that the reason he never, ever brought it up was the fact that he was going to Lower Woods Harbor to visit his girlfriend, and he was married. And uh, so he didn't want anybody to know about that. And he told his daughter about it on his deathbed. He was dying of brain cancer. Oh, and for then, crying uh, out loud, for crying yeah. out loud, the UFOs move into the realm of yeah. midnight assignations. Yeah, well, and, there's two of them, all right? Here's another one for you. Before Lori and them got there, and they didn't realize it when they hauled onto the parking lot, there was another car there already, but it was on the other side of the Irish Moss plant between the edge of the building and a, an embankment. And there was a young fella and his girlfriend in there, and uh, probably up to no good, and uh, they watched the thing land on the water very gently. But how I found out, or we found out about that, and maybe 200 other people that were in the auditorium at the time, is I'd gotten a call from a friend of mine who was one of the uh, the nephew of one of the guys who went out in the first boats that night, and he told me that he had a fisherman down there who had told him this story. But he said, uh, I don't want to give any names, he said, because I don't want to embarrass the young lady I was with. This was probably about six, six or seven years ago. And uh, he, he said, so... I was telling everybody this at one of our Shag Harbor uh, uh, conferences down in Shag Harbor at the um, uh, elementary school, and uh, I started telling this story. And I got to the point about the woman being with the guy, and then this woman pops up in the audience and said, well, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, that's why I'm here. I want to hear more about the, the story. She didn't see, have, have any problems about 
being embarrassed by it at all. I mean, there was 200 more other people out in that auditorium. Well, what, and, what, uh, is a, so, what, is, what is a UFO sighting without a little bit of sex involved? I yeah, mean, well, you got to move is in called, those arenas. <laughs> the place is actually named, Shag Harbor is named after a fish that's called a shag. But you know the British interpretation <laughs> of shag. I wasn't you know. going to go there. I was going yeah. to avoid that if possible. Well, Mike, Mike Myers made a big movie, you know, using the title The Spy That Shagged Me. And uh, but apparently, you know, they had good reason for naming it a double meaning anyway, without getting into that. So that's it didn't bring that to a halt, because, as you know, if you read the book, there's a, a second component to this thing off of Shelburne, which is supposedly where these things came back to light again at the same time. And, well, let, me, uh, let me let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Um, sure. There were reports that the U.S. Navy was involved in some fashion. Was, a, was there a Navy vessel involved at all in this, in well, the search? Some some of the fishermen down there said that they they saw uh, uh, they thought it was a, a U.S. Navy submarine uh, just off the mouth of Cape Sa- or right off the mouth of uh, the Sound uh, or, or Bon Portage, and it just sat there. And they they'd have permission to enter our waters because we did that quite often between Canada and the United States. That well, we still do. And aircraft, uh, you know, crossing sovereignty lines, you know, borders and so on, uh, usually by permission. And uh, but anyway, uh, so they thought they saw one out there that night. There was there was reports of a submarine, and uh, uh, off of uh, Shelburne as well. But there's five or six other ships apparently camped over two objects sitting on the bottom off the mouth of Shelburne Harbor. Now Shelburne other ships, Har- other ships. Are you talking Canadian uh, yeah, military vessels? Yeah, mostly Canadian, and there, there was the possibility of some American uh, destroyers there, an American destroyer as well. Now, the, the reason we get that is, and I can mention his name, is uh, uh, Leo Gonneau. He was one of the, uh, a diver from the fleet diving unit. And Chris had asked a friend of his, who was the son of a fleet diving unit trainer, uh, a scuba trainer for the Navy, uh, if he could track down the names of the divers for the Shag Harbor incident. Well, he's tracked down the names of some divers, but unfortunately, not necessarily unfortunately, for, uh, what turned out is was they were the divers involved off of Shelburne, not in Shag Harbor. And one of them was Leo, Leo Gonneau. And he was uh, pretty, uh, he had a lot of bravado. And when Chris first contacted him, he, he said, to the, told him the story of what had happened. And then subsequent to that, both him and myself ran across people who verified that the same thing had happened off of Shelburne and that there was two objects supposedly had come up from Shag Harbor underwater and camped off the mouth of, uh, of uh, Shelburne Harbor and in front of the uh, government point, which was the uh, entrance point for SUSIS, which is the American uh, underwater surveillance, microphone underwater surveillance system. Now, when you say uh, um, when you say two objects, you, are you suggesting that the uh, there was two objects underwater and they moved underwater away from the Shag Harbor area? Yeah, and went about twenty-three nautical miles up the coast and right off the the, the mouth of Shelburne Harbor, where there's an island there called McNutt's Island, and there's a lighthouse there. And we, what what happened to them? What happened to these objects? Now, these are the objects from Shag Harbor. They've now moved twenty-two nautical miles away. What happened to them? Where did they go? Okay. Can't swear to those are the same two objects, but this is the inference we're getting. Uh, We're getting this from military people now and absolutely no documentation, but all anecdotal. So that's what makes it difficult. But, I mean, they swear to it. I mean, uh, electronic intelligence, uh, uh, submarine warfare aircraft that were tracking the things. Um, They're the ones that gave us the detail on where the things uh, initially came from. From Siberia over northern Canada. NORAD scrambled aircraft out of, uh, out of Goose Bay and uh, North Bay in Ontario, Goose Bay and Labrador, to try to intercept, and then the thing all of a sudden stopped. It was doing about 7,700 miles an hour, one of them anyway. The, we don't know where the second one came from. It might have been already there for all we know. But anyway, the, uh, this thing came down, it stopped, and uh, that's when they, they called back on the scramble because they were scrambling F-104s up into the Canadian north. I mean, they weren't coming back. They didn't me, have the let, range. Let, let me stop you here because I'm I'm getting a little confused. Are you suggesting that the object that fell into Shag Harbor was tracked from Siberia across Canada, and there were multiple attempts to intercept it? Is that what yeah. you're saying here? Yeah, they were going to they were going to try to intercept it. They launched, and then they recalled when this thing stopped and hovered for for about four minutes, and then it continued on at about 4,400 miles an hour, came down over uh, eastern Canada, over the uh, edge of Labrador, between Labrador and Quebec, over, uh, uh, over down over the Nova Scotia part of uh, New Brunswick, and then 
and and there's all kinds of uh, evidence to support that by UFO sightings that happened. Uh, and, and like I said, Kevin, it's so convoluted. There's so many different sightings. The Mountie and the uh, other, again, was, uh, was was this were these intercepts? Or is, this, is this documented? Do you have documents that's uh, about these intercepts? Uh, no, that's the point. We just have anecdotal evidence. And uh, but I mean, I we know the people. I've got one of the guys' names written down here that I'm going to see sometime in the next couple of weeks because I might do a small story up around that itself. He was an electronic intelligence uh, officer on a, an Argus, which was a four uh, four engine uh, anti submarine warfare aircraft with the stinger on the back and everything. You know, drop sonar buoys, could drop bombs, the whole nine yards if it had to. But he was on one of these, and that's what they were doing was tracking. He said, which was odd because we were allowed to fly right down over the Gulf of Maine back to the down into the United States and back up again. And in the meantime, they had uh, their own aircraft doing the same thing. There were some Neptunes involved at Neptune aircraft. You probably know what I'm talking about. And uh, But this thing was a big four-engine thing. It could travel for, it could cross the Atlantic in the middle, for God's sakes, and stay, stay aloft for 23 hours. But anyway, it flew out of Greenwood, Nova Scotia. There's, big, there's a big Air Force base there, too. But, I mean, it's there's so much detail, it's hard to explain it in the short time we have, Kevin. Yeah, and, I, uh, you've you've, you've uh, thrown in an awful lot of information here. Yeah, and, I know. And I'm trying to keep it keep it straight in my mind, and I'm familiar with the case. Yeah, so, I know. So it's, it's we're, we're, talking, easy. we're talking about an object that came from from uh, the west, uh, Siberia. North, yeah, over Siberia, curved around quickly over to the north and over Ellesmere Island. And, uh, crossing, basically, crossing, crossing Canada. It stops yeah. and hovers for four minutes. It yeah. continues on, and then it drops into Shag Harbor. Yeah, it comes down and crosses over uh, various spots. Uh, the uh, down sh- the Bay of Fundy curves inwards uh, over uh, the area called Digby Neck over Wedgeport and uh, fishing boats down there that thought uh, there was a... Now, this is where we get to the point where there seems to be two objects. And uh, I even had uh, an electronic, uh, not electronic, the, the radio operator who was handling the radio messages that night for uh, the for the Navy say, as soon as I called him, I said, he, he said, yeah, there were, you know, there was two objects that night. And I said, well, I didn't know that for sure, but I suspected because I had the other two people that attested to that and and, uh, and some other people. And uh, so these things came across where I was saying from Maitland, they, another Mountie involved and three game wardens who were staked on at another site uh, on the other side of Nova Scotia looking for deer jackers. And uh, the next day when they did uh, a track of the thing they saw crossing over, uh, they they found uh, one of them, the Bert Green, his name was, who was a game warden, said to the Mountie, he said, uh, you know, this thing went over, it looks like it went over towards Shag Harbor. And he said, well, that's what I came over to tell you. They had a big incident over in Shag Harbor. Three of our Mounties were out there. They saw it. And, well, let me um, let me let me break in here because I'm getting right up against the break time again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and and we've just, I mean, this this has exploded way beyond where I thought it was going to go. So let me yeah. say this. Let me say this. You know, you can get more information at www.donledger.com/uap.html, and I always put up information on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I've covered the case in a couple of books, uh, the Randall Report and the Scientific Ufology talks about this case to give you more information. We will return in just a moment with Don Ledger and see if we can't bring this to some kind of a conclusion uh, so we all understand what happened. We will be right back. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 
213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? I'm Dr. Kimberly McGeorge, and on The Secret to Everything, we will merge the practical with open investigation into all realms of the mysterious. We will talk to cutting-edge alternative health practitioners, those who inspire and motivate you in business and life, and of course, we will share stories of the paranormal, conspiracy, and cryptozoology. You will transform because of the frequency I carry, the frequencies my guests carry. Life may never be the same after you listen to this program. For the secret to everything is for you, the listener. For those who desire more in every area of their lives and believe that it can still be found. Listen and discover thesecrettoeverything.com. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500 plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. And we have returned with Don Ledger, who has complicated the Shag Harbor case beyond all comprehension at this point. Um, I think we've recapped it a couple of times here, and I'll make sure I've got this stuff right, that um, prior to the object falling into Shag Harbor, there is anecdotal evidence based on eyewitness testimony of an object uh, coming into Canada from the west, crossing over Canada, hovering briefly, was joined by a second object apparently, and one of them then fell into Shag Harbor. Is that essentially what we're talking about here? Well, it seems to be that. I wouldn't fell. I'd say it landed gently on the water. Now, maybe it had to go underwater. I don't know, Kevin. Who, who knows? You know. It uh, Anyway, it disappeared underwater, and the next thing you know, at the same time over in uh, uh, apparently at the same time over in off Shelburne about, you know, not long afterwards, we got a big incident going on over there underwater, but that wasn't an owner boat for probably, uh, 25 or 30 years. And, so where uh, we, so where we are here is uh, we've got, the, we've got this wonderful sighting in Shag Harbor, uh, from, from October of 1967. And I wanted to get in, in here briefly and mention that during the UFO investigation by the, um, United States, 
in, at that time, uh, the Condon Committee, they actually made a phone call to Shag Harbor to talk about the case and um, were unable to gather much information, didn't gather much information about it and wrote it off um, as, uh, as, as some kind of a hoax and didn't bother investigating it. Is that, that, but that's correct. And so it was not really a big part of the U.S. Uh, government investigation of UFOs. But, it, but as you and Chris Stiles were doing your research, you covered, uncovered documents, uh, official documents that talked about this UFO sighting at Shag Harbor. Is that correct? Right, yeah. Chris found them first. When he first started to get involved in this, he dragged me into this thing about a year later. We both joined MUFON, and we had a meeting together, and we were talking about where, how we would proceed in Nova Scotia investigating UFOs. And he said, well, I'm, I'm looking into this one that happened back in 1967, and it has turned out I was actually right there that night. And I was a traveling salesman. I used to travel at night to, to get there for the next morning, and I was past the area probably about two two hours or three hours after the incident. So anyway, and then it was in the papers when I got home. My boy brought it up to me. He said, did you see that thing in the paper? I said, no. Anyway, um, the uh, this uh, whole thing just sort of blew up later on. Uh, you know, as you write, when you write a book, Kevin, you know, you know, later on you're going to get people that are going to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, listen, I got some information for you, which is basically what sort of happened with you with Shag Harbor. And although we did have the... Uh, the story about what happened off of Shelburne at the same time, and then two divers going down on this thing, and for a few days they had to, they camped over for seven days apparently. These two objects, and they were down taking pictures. Now, if they were taking pictures underwater of anything in the waters off of Nova Scotia, they were probably within ten or fifteen feet of it because the water is very cloudy. It's loaded with plankton. I know I'm a scuba or was a scuba diver myself for years, and. Um, they, they did apparently photograph it there, and that's probably where you heard about the photographic thing. Um, and uh, But we were never able to contact the fellow who now lives apparently in Cornwallis, Ontario, but he would never talk to us about it. So they don't want to talk about it. A lot of these guys were scared of their pensions, Kevin, including Leo Gano. We did, I didn't bring his name up or mention his real name, the diver, until uh, he, he died a couple of years ago. So then, you know, we didn't have to worry about his pension anymore. But, you know, their pensions were threatened. They were warned away. I've had numerous instances of this uh, where uh, people were warned by the military not to talk about stuff. Um, this, uh, uh, well, they were, they, uh, were, they were warned not to talk about this case specifically, though, also, right? Yeah, this particular one, yeah, in particular, these, and the, that's what these two guys were, or this guy and the electronic intelligence officer, who was going to be on the uh, sightings program that was, remember that program that was on in the States there back in the 90s? Yes, yes. Chris actually got them to come up here, and they spent about 35 grand diving around down in the, in the, in the sound. And uh, that's when uh, and he, uh, Chris had contacted this fellow to show up, the, uh, the RCAF officer, who left the force in the service in 72. And uh, he said, sure. And, uh, but, and they were supposed to do it on a Saturday. And uh, so anyway, he calls uh, Chris and asks him if he could meet him at a Tim Hortons. That's like Dunkin' Donuts and, or, uh, you know, the other one. And uh, so they, uh, Chris met him, and the guy shows up at 9 o'clock at night. It's dark. It's, it's also October. And he's got dark sunglasses on and a baseball cap. And he said, listen, I just wanted to tell you I can't do that show tomorrow or that thing tomorrow. And Chris said, oh, that's too bad. And uh, so I, uh, he said, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. He said, I'll have to bail on that one or whatever. And uh, Chris uh, said, well, okay, I guess we'll have to do, you know, we got some other witnesses maybe we can work with there. And so um, uh, they broke up. So I, I called up uh, this guy again, and because uh, he's still alive, and he lives with probably within uh, four or five hundred yards of me here and uh, right now. And he said, uh, yeah, that's what happened. And I said, you know what? Uh, Chris never asked you why you didn't want to do it. And he said, oh, he says, I was told not to. And he, I said, who, by whom? He said, uh, he said I, I was eating my supper. It was around 6 o'clock on Friday night. I was supposed to meet Chris the next day. And this uh, voice comes on and said, I'm a ranking officer uh, at DND in Ottawa, Department of National Defense. And he said, uh, I'm, uh, you're supposed to be doing an interview on uh, this Shag Harbor thing, and uh, I'm telling you, ordering you not to. And he said, or, well, ordering, him, order, ordering him not to. Yeah, tell him not to do it. And he said, you, were, you signed an affidavit in 1972, a secrecy affidavit. That probably had more to do with electronic intelligence. But anyway, and, uh, but, uh, 
he said, well, okay. He said, uh, you know, and he wasn't really caring about his pension because he was a major contractor by this time and doing very well without this minuscule pension he would have got from, <laughs> carried on from 1972. And uh, so he said, well, all right. So I said, well, what do you know about that? So I learned that. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Kevin. A few years later, I get a phone call from a friend of mine who's a civil engineer who's, who used to be in the, in the, in the Army. He's got an, an Army, a retired Army major who says, he wants to meet with me because something weird happened to him. We can't even get into that now, Kevin. We don't have we don't have the time. But what, essentially, what happened was we saw a monster UFO when he was returning ba- back from a training exercise with his driver in broad daylight, two o'clock in the afternoon, missing time the whole nine yards. Now this guy is, you know, a wounded warrior soldier. He was in layoffs during the Vietnam War, running inter- interdiction interdiction for the Americans and our special forces group up here had been wounded there, grenade, and uh, so anyway. He tells me about that, and then I uh, then we get talking about different things. I said, you know, I had a lot of trouble with the with the military. I said, well, I was trying to get uh, some witnesses to talk, and uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, one of my witnesses, you know, and I, the story I just told you about the guy getting the phone call. And he says, oh yeah, I've done that, and he said, I said, you called up people and told them not to talk about a UFO incident. He said, no, no, not about that. It'd be other some other stuff. He said, but you know, it was, if we wanted to, we didn't want somebody to talk about it to the media or something. We call him up, tell him we're a ranking officer from Ottawa, and uh, and uh, we don't want you to talk about this. And uh, probably with veiled threats about their pension or whatever. And uh, so, geez, I was flabbergasted when I heard that. I'm sitting right across from a guy that's, you know, who's a, a retired, just recently retired major, uh, major from the uh, Canadian Armed Forces, and he's telling me this, you know, right but anyway, um, tons of stuff surrounding this particular case and other cases, Kevin. Sometimes they all tie together, you know. It's, when, you, I, I when, think, when you put – well, some of this you couldn't have put in Dark Object because it came out after you wrote the book. But is, is some Exactly, of this yeah. Is some of this – this is a lot of this is covered. The documentation is covered in the book Dark, Dark Object, correct? Yeah, not too much. They only put about four leaves or two leaves in there with about four pages of, of the documents in their minuscule to start with. There's probably about 40 of them. And uh, mostly just the, uh, you know, telexes and everything going back and forth about uh, bring, bringing assets to, she- to Shag Harbor, what what it was. And they're called a CF- CFAO 71-6 action order, the CFAO, Canadian Forces Action Order, which is a, uh, which they put down detail on there. And you'd say, well, this stuff doesn't seem to be connected, but you'll see A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Uh, on, on the left-hand side of it. And if you go to the code for A, a B, C, D, E, F, G, H, you'll see uh witness time date of occurrence you know weather blah 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 going down and you know what the question is without actually looking at it the you know on these documents but they're they're pretty well illuminated anyway i mean they usually have an explanatory note on on the bottom or whatever well, to kind of wrap this up, and I know we didn't get to the, the, the maritime UFOs that we wanted to, so we'll have to do that again at another time and specifically talk about that. But to wrap, we'll kind of wrap this up, You're, we know there's documentation. The uh, government said they didn't know what it was, but didn't, couldn't identify what it was, but they knew what it wasn't. Um, yeah. And, and the, all of this came out from uh, government files, so that's well documented in that respect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, the uh, that part of it, the Shag Harbor incident, is pretty well documented as to what they were up to and what they were doing. What they did find, what they didn't find. There's 23 seconds of film that CBC shot of the fishing boats out cross crisscrossing in the in the in the Coast Guard kind of road crisscrossing the waters off Shag Harbor, looking for the stuff on the bottom. And they and, attempted uh, to they attempted to collect some of the foam, but were unable to do that. So we don't have any kind of um, no. analysis of that. It's even referred to in one of the documents. It's too bad they weren't able to grab a sample. They tried to, but they it just wouldn't pick up. Nobody had a bucket or something. They should have thrown a bucket over the side, I guess. But um, yeah, it sounds like to, there was enough. They could have done that. Well, they probably could have, Kevin. They. Uh, yeah. Um, but I mean, people are at the time looking for bodies. They're not thinking about a UFO or anything like that. But um, it's it's just you know they're misdirected in their heads as to what the re- was really going on. Uh, just to mention, too, I'm doing a, one of these conferences. Uh, this one's in uh, Toronto, up to Toronto International, Pearson International, June 23rd to 25th. To, it's called the Alien Cosmic Expo. And well, it's a UFO conference. One of the first I've done in the last couple of years now. Well, uh, Don, 
we're yep. out of time. We're just flat yeah. out of time. You got that mentioned. You're you're going to be speaking at that conference here coming up in June. So if people yep. want to know more and talk to you about it, that's where they can see you. Yep. Uh, your your uh, website is www.donledger.com slash uap.html. And uh, your book is Dark Object, the world's only government documented UFO case. And uh, your other book is Maritime UFOs. Your other book is Maritime UFOs. Uh, We will be back next week with uh, Paul Kimball talking about UFOs and Oak Island for that matter. And if you want more information, take a look at uh, www.kevinrandall.com. Thank you for tuning in. 